Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome to the last edition of the Griffith Asia Institute uh, seminar series for this semester. I'm very happy today to have uh, Stephen McLaughlin um, having a presentation. Stephen is a research fellow at the GAI and also at the CGPP Center for still difficult to say before government and public policy. Um, Stevens got a PhD from UQ and his uh, major research interests concern uh, conflicts and mass atrocities, specifically their prevention, uh, the responsibility to protect uh, international peace and security and uh, ethnic conflict in post-communist states. Stephen has uh, already published a number of works. Uh, one is a journal article in the Responsibility to Protect, and he's also finished his book already. I think it's going to come out this year or next year. Hopefully August. This all going well. Uh, that's going to be published with Routledge, and uh, the title is The Structure of Prevention of Mass Atrocities, Understanding Risk and Resilience. And I believe that goes into the similar direction of today's topic, which is about the role of political leaders in preventing mass atrocities, and as I understand it right, the focus on how inclusive ideologies, the promotion of inclusive ideologies could actually function in, in preventing mass atrocities, especially in Africa. So as usual, we're going to have a talk for about 40 minutes and then open the floor to, to questions. All right, well, thanks for that. Um, just before I start, when I talk about the prevention of mass atrocities, by mass atrocities, I, I usually refer to the four crimes under R2P, just, just so you're sort of aware of the sort of unit of reference that I'm dealing with. Genocide, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing and war crimes. And um, one could sum those up as being the most uh, extreme forms of um, systematic violence targeted against unarmed civilians. Um, so why am I doing this project, why am I exploring this idea of political leaders and the prevention of mass atrocities? Well, while, while I was doing my PhD, my, my thesis that never seems to entirely go away and it's still probably in its dying gasps right now and this, this project probably represents the last hurrah for the PhD before I put it to bed once and for all and never look at it again. But one interesting... Um, theme that sort of arose out of my PhD research when I was looking at, well, why don't atrocities happen in some places where you see some of these um, salient long-term risk factors? One thing that kept popping up was um, the, the impact that the inaugural leaders of the three countries that I looked at had on, on risk mitigation. And so uh, the three countries, Botswana, Zambia and Tanzania, all went through decolonisation in the early to mid-60s, uh, Soretta Kama was the inaugural president of um, Botswana, Kenneth Kaunda of Zambia and Julius Nyerere of Tanzania. So I, I thought it might be interesting just to focus on these three leaders and to, to look at what their particular impact was on risk mitigation with the, with the idea of having two uh, sort of spin-off projects from from this particular presentation. One, which is in the works already, is doing a, a, a comparative piece between Kaunda and Mugabe, which I'm co-authoring with um, Matia, some of whom you met earlier this year. And another one I thought I might... I'm still playing around, but I'll talk about that at the end, is 
taking the other two leaders and maybe doing a, um, a positive-negative sort of comparison with someone like Houphouet Boigny of Côte d'Ivoire, who was very similar in in style and in ideology, but uh, Côte d'Ivoire, as you know, um, sort of had a very has a very different history. So um, today's presentation, I'm going to make the basic argument that I'm going to make is that. Um, each leader developed policies and they adopted strategies which had a strong positive impact on the risk, on risk factors that I think are associated with uh, mass atrocities that were influence, influential in managing diversity, during, particularly during the critical formative years of independence. And I'm going to focus on, on those formative years. And because this is quite a, a broad uh, sort of look at um, three, very, you know, three sort of complex sort of national histories, it's... it's um, by necessity, it's going to be an illustrative um, process rather than an exhaustive sort of analysis of, of what they were doing. Um, the outline I'm going to look at today, first of all, I'll sort of delve into this question, why, why leaders? Why look at leaders in terms of mass atrocity prevention or risk mitigation? And I'll sort of talk a little bit about what's been covered in sort of the literature on comparative genocide studies and the broader literature on sort of identity-based conflict as well. Then I'll, um, I'll talk about negative cases and why I think negative cases are important in um, comparative genocide studies and um, uh, in, in, in studies that investigate the causes of mass atrocities. Then I'll present just, a, just briefly a, a, a framework of some of the, the most salient risk factors associated with mass atrocities uh, from a long-term perspective before I then look at risk in the three countries at independence, what kind of risk was salient there, then a brief sort of outline of the three, these three leaders, what their backgrounds were, and then what sort of strategies they adopted and how they relate to risk mitigation. So why examine political leaders in terms of risk mitigation and understanding why atrocities don't happen? I've, I've got two quotes here, and, and um, the reason why I've chosen these two quotes is, is they talk about the relationship, I guess, in, bro in a broad sense between structure and agency, but they also represent sort of two two ends of um, a sort of fairly brief sort of period where comparative genocide studies has existed. So Leo Cooper, he's what was one of the pioneers, one of the early sort of um, scholars that investigated genocide at, in a, on a comparative basis. And, and, um, and he said that elites are working with social forces present within society. Um, so in other words, um, genocide, well, what he talks about is that genocide is is the product of, of deliberate and calculated strategies designed to eliminate in whole or in part a particular group based on identity or, or whatsoever. But one thing he, he, um, he stresses is that these strategies or these, these genocidal situations don't occur in a vacuum. Uh, what happens is there are these <coughs> other factors in play already, these sort of um, structural risk factors like a divided society, discrimination, Etc. And what leaders do is they come along, and for whatever reason, they they take advantage, they manipulate these these structural factors. So that was sort of late 70s, early 80s, when comparative genocide studies was just taking off. David Hamburg, uh, what he's done is he's sort of synthesised a lot of this research in comparative genocide studies to sort of talk about causes in a general sense, and and he says that. Genocides are generally precipitated by leaders of, of um, different violent political or religious sects, and they, they take advantage of predisposing elements and cultural myths, and then they skillfully work on them to 
you know, terrible things. Uh, so again, you can see that uh, what we have are two, two sort of broad dynamics at play. You've got these, these long-term risk factors and you've got a leader for whatever reason. There's usually maybe some kind of upheaval that's going on in a country and they take advantage of those to, to, uh, to fulfil extreme political goals. In the broader literature on ethnic conflict, you see similar definitions or similar sort of, um, sort of representations of the, the role of leadership, although that sort of um, distinction between structure and agency changes depending on the theory. So you've got elite uh, manip <coughs> manipulation theories that say that uh, what, what elites do is they, they construct identity, they construct narratives to drive wedges within populations. People like John Mueller or VP Gagnon talking about uh, what happened when uh, Yugoslavia fragmented and, and descended into to conflict um, use such explanations. And then you've got other people who place more emphasis on the, the, uh, the gravitas of certain um, identity-based narratives uh, and the emotional, um, I suppose, weight around that and that the role that leaders do is they tap into that rather than construct. And, and people like Stuart Kaufman have talked about that. Um, so, I mean, depending on the theory, but again, you have this role of, of leaders coming in and taking advantage of, of um, divided societies to some extent. Um, so, why look at leaders? Well, I've, as I've pointed out, I think scholars have acknowledged the role that leaders play in the perpetration of mass atrocities, but little has been written about the role that leaders play in mitigating the risk associated um, with such violence. Um, and this is something that I've talked about before, that it's less common to find information about what leaders do to mitigate the risk when you've got these sort of long-term risk factors there. Although some scholars of ethnic conflict do talk about the pivotal role that leaders play. They can either provoke conflict or they can, they can manage diversity and play a role along the lines of resolving these, these tensions. People like Daniel Byman and um, Obersholl as well talk about the pivotal role that leaders play, although in their analyses they focus overwhelmingly on, on that role uh, when it manifests into conflict rather than the opposite. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions in um, comparative genocide study. I think the most notable exception is, is a scholar called Manus Midlaski who, who investigates a few non-cases at length in his book called The Killing Trap, which came out in 2005. What he does is he attributes the avoidance of, of genocide, in this case, um, to two structural features. He talks about the absence of territorial loss, and he gives examples of Finland and Bulgaria during World War II, and the fact that they didn't experience territorial loss um, played into the fact that they refused to um, cede members of their Jewish populations um, during World War II. And another example he used, well, another um, feature he says that has a protective factor on, against genocide is the existence of an affine population and he, he talks about the Greeks in the Ottoman Empire in World War I as an example of this and the fact that um, um, Greece was a neighbouring country also a country that um, was growing in, in prominence played into the fact that Greeks weren't targeted anywhere near to the extent that Armenians were in the Ottoman Empire during the First World War. The thing I'll point out about, um, about his use of um, negative cases is that um, both, both of these are structural features rather than looking at um, 
the role of leadership or, or, or how agency plays into um, risk mitigation. One scholar who does consider the question of leadership in the avoidance of genocide is a, is a guy called Scott Strauss. And in 2012, he, um, he published an article in Perspectives on Politics where he compared uh, Rwanda and Cote d'Ivoire. And, and the question that he was interested in was why was it that Rwanda descended into genocide in 1994 while Cote d'Ivoire in 2010, 2011 avoided genocide? And one of the, um, one of the, the distinguishing factors that he identifies was the, um, the impact of Cote d'Ivoire's inaugural leader, Hufwe Bwani, and, uh, and Hufwe Bwani emphasised dialogue, tolerance and solidarity amongst various groups within Cote d'Ivoire. And he, he says this was, this was uh, an important factor there. Um, I think that's fine, but I think there's a more interesting question regarding Cote d'Ivoire. And, um, and because I'm working with a broader unit of reference, my, my question would be, why was, why was it that 30 years of strong, inclusive leadership didn't... Um, inhibit Cote d'Ivoire from descending into civil war and, uh, and experiencing mass atrocities. So I, I brought that out and said, well, why, why did it experience so much instability and violence anyway? Was, and maybe we're splitting straws saying that it wasn't genocide. Um, so I think, I believe that there's some scope to identify uh, or to investigate what leaders do to manage risk. Um, and such processes have also fairly recently been flagged by the UN Secretary-General in his reports on the responsibility to protect. Uh, for example, in 2009, he, he uh, released a framing report on R2P called Implementing the Responsibility to Protect, and um, he touched on this a little bit. He, he said that states that handled their internal diversity well were unlikely to follow a destructive path. But then he went on to say, well, we don't really know what happens when they do this, nobody's really looked at that. He said that more research needs to go into why it was that some states uh, experienced mass violence, whereas its neighbours followed a very different path. And uh, he, he then, to his credit, he released another report last year where he delved into that a little bit more and um, um, looking at what role states or local or predominantly national actors played in. in mitigating the risk of mass atrocity, he identified what he called six broad sources of resilience. Um, one of the issues there as well is that there was an over, overwhelming emphasis once again on structure when it comes to risk mitigation and there's no real sort of um, consideration of the role of agency, particularly leadership, which is what I'm interested in here. And that's, that's what I want to do and I think that there are some interesting insights for prevention that, um, that we could learn from from conducting such analyses. But before I go into these cases, I want to just explore a little bit about um, the use of negative cases and mass atrocities, the way that I use them and why I think they're important. And um, the main reason, I think, is in comparative genocide studies that there is an overemphasis on, on positive cases. There's a methodological tendency to choose historical cases of genocide, to look at some of their common antecedents and then to theorise about, about the, um, the causes of genocide from, from that process. Um, now, some scholars have ad added negative cases to demonstrate their theories or to strengthen their theories, but for the most part there's an overwhelming focus on positive cases. And uh, in his recent book, Martin Shaw 
goes a little bit further and says not only is there a tendency to focus on positive cases, there's a tendency to focus on what he calls the mega-genocides, the, the, the highly destructive genocides of the 20th century, the Holocaust, Rwanda, Cambodia, Armenia. Um, and and there's, a, there's a problem with this, and, and Strauss identified this problem in the same article that I talked about before. He talks about a frequency mismatch where you have uh, independent variables that are far more common than the dependent variable. And um, in other words, we can attribute more value to, to these identified causes uh, than, than, uh, than they, ne they necessitate. In, a, in a, uh, an article that uh, looked at the use of negative cases, Rebecca Ami looks at this idea of the frequency mismatch and said that when you emphasise positive cases too much, there's a tendency to, to, to assume that the dependent variable is inevitable. And I think that this is a pitfall that, that tends to happen in the scholarship on comparative genocide studies. Um, so I think it's really important. But the other thing is, when you've got a situation where you've got all these independent variables, you've got these, these are the causes of genocide, these are, uh, and it's, it's usually a combination of structural causes, or what, um, what Leo Cooper talks about is those those factors that leaders tap into to um, drive wedges or to, to, to use as a springboard to uh, enact their, their calculated policies of destruction. Uh, the problem with those long-term factors is that there's a very tenuous causal link between those and, and violent outcomes. The question is, what do we do with those? How do, how do, we, how do we look at those then? Uh, one, one scholar... Has one scholar called Benjamin Valentino has has actually dismissed those structural factors altogether. He says is, they're not helpful in um, in being indicators of of impending genocidal violence because of that tenuous causal link. And so what he does is he eliminates them altogether. He doesn't look at them. He says the only thing we really should look at are those direct causal factors, and he narrows that down to the deliberate. Um, goals and strategies of, of elites or leaders to, um, to play out their sort of extreme sort of, um, objectives of, of um, political power or whatever. Uh, I, I think that he makes a good point, but I think that these causal factors that do have this sort of um, indirect causal link, I suppose, with the outcome are interesting for the fact that they exist in, in other situations that don't lead to genocide and other mass atrocities. And the fact that you can have these independent variables that, that lead to other outcomes, I think raises interesting insights for long-term prevention. So the question that I ask is then, well, what other things are going on in these countries where we see these risk factors, but we don't see this rare, you know, relatively rare extreme outcome of violence. So what's going on? What can we learn about the processes and dynamics in these countries that essentially um, may lead us to, you know, learn, to theorise about or to, to draw conclusions about how you can live with these risk factors without, without having, you know, the, that sort of violent outcome. So there are insights for prevention that are really important. But at the same time, um, there are pitfalls in, in, in conducting research into these non-cases. And one of the comments that I got recently in a revise and resubmit review on an article that I did on Zambia was that um, the, the reviewer was saying, 
But you're, how can you say that... Well, it seems like you're arguing that if it weren't for these mitigating factors, then mass atrocities would have occurred inevitably. And this is one of the, one of the pieces of feedback that I've had, and I've had to go back and, and uh, stress very strongly that I'm not saying that these risk factors or these mitigating factors um, are crucial, are the only intervening factors in what would have inevitably resulted in a violent outcome. What I'm saying is that these risk factors do not indicate an inevitable outcome. Here's what happened in this particular situation. And, um, and while we can't generalise that in terms of saying that if it weren't for X, then genocide or mass atrocities would have happened, I think we can learn some interesting things about managing sort of identity-based diversity and, and um, conflict resolution um, that, that focuses on local and national actors. So I think that's a pitfall when we're looking at negative cases and, and it's something that I try to avoid. In this case, what I'm interested in, understand, interested in understanding is, is the processes of risk mitigation before the, before the perpetration of mass atrocities becomes the most likely outcome or becomes almost inevitable. And the reason for this is that that's the space where I believe that the most effective processes associated with the long-term prevention of atrocities can occur. Um, it's not helpful if you take Valentino's um, sort of theoretical perspective where he's dealing only with indicators that he sees having a direct causal link with mass atrocities. I think it's not helpful in terms of prevention to wait until there's no ambiguity about the certainty that atrocities will occur. When it gets to that point, and when tensions are escalating and violence begins, uh, the type of preventive strategies that are needed are necessarily invasive, expensive and controversial. And this is something that Jennifer Welsh, who's the current Special Advisor on the Responsibility to Protect in the UN, has pointed out in a, an article a few years ago that um, what we call direct prevention or strategies that deal with escalating tensions, these are, these are difficult to implement. They're expensive. They're necessarily invasive in, in that they focus on external actors and it's hard to get international consent for them. And if you look at the, um, the preceding years um, prior to the Rwandan genocide and you look at all of, the, all of the noise about this is going to result in a really dire outcome that was being voiced by Romeo Dallaire, the head of the DPKO force um, mission in, in Rwanda and many others, these things were ignored and it was very easy to say, well, you know, it's expensive or we don't think it's going to happen and there's always contention. And usually, particularly with genocide, people won't, there won't be consent about whether or not something is a genocide until after the fact anyway. So, so you're dealing with really sort of, I think, um, a, a difficult territory if you're waiting until you've got no ambiguity about what these causal factors are. So I think, in the cases that I'm looking at today, I think the existence of structural risk factors in each of these countries, also the prevalence of war and atrocities in neighbouring countries, and the particular challenges surrounding decolonisation, uh, made future atrocities in these countries possible. And I think that that's enough to justify looking at them as negative cases. And um, I'm basing this partly on... Um, Mahoney and Goetz's um, discussion of where negative cases uh, can be used in qualitative uh, research in political science. And they talk about 
choosing ne negative cases based on what they call the possibility principle, where what they, where the, 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 I guess the outcome of interest is possible. If you can prove that the outcome of interest is possible, then you can justify the use of those negative cases. And they base possibility on two factors. One is that, is that they share at least one independent variable associated with the outcome. And two is that the choice of cases ex is excluded if, and I quote, it possesses a value on a variable that is known from previous research to make the outcome of interest impossible. So if there's some kind of intervening variable that, that, that makes it impossible for that outcome to, to materialise, then that rules it out. Um, the second point is a little bit harder in terms of justifying negative cases in relation to mass atrocities, although Mahoney and Gertz give an example in relation to genocide using Barbara Half's um, large end work. They, uh, they, they point to Barbara Half and they say that she defines upheaval as being um, an example of, uh, of an intervening factor that uh, either makes it possible or impossible. And the absence of upheaval, they claim, makes, um, makes genocide and politicide, as half uh, frames it, impossible. Um, thankfully for me, I think, half incorporates within this idea of upheaval uh, the process of um, decolonisation and redrawing state boundaries as well. Or, um, or the breakup of an existing state through the process of decolonisation, and so there's a fairly broad understanding of upheaval. But also, the space that I work in, in terms of negative cases, um, especially in comparative genocide studies, when you, when when a country experiences an upheaval, usually that sets it on the course to um, a likely violent outcome, and the space that I usually look at is, is usually prior to upheaval. I'm also interested in how countries sort of strengthen their resilience so that they are able to deal with future upheavals. So, so again, um, it, I guess you could, you could question my justification of negative cases by the fact that um, I'm looking sort of prior to processes that make genocide likely, but I think those structural risk factors, and I think there's also an unpredictability around the the the, uh, the occurrence of upheavals that uh, that makes that makes looking at negative cases justifiable. I think so. Anyway, without further ado, these are some of the structural risk factors that I've been playing around with for a few years. Uh, this, is makes, this is sort of taken from a framework that I've used in my PhD, but also I'm sort of borrowing it in my DECRA project as well. These are some of the salient long-term risk factors associated with genocide and mass atrocities. And, um, and I, I should point out that usually it's a combination of factors as well, and different scholars have said different things about the values of different ones. And, but anyway... In the three countries that I'm looking at, I'll just talk briefly about, about um, some of the risk factors that existed there around the time of independence. So Botswana, there was a huge gap between rich and poor, and that gap had an ethnic dimension to it. Um, the, wealthier, the wealthier people were essentially the aristocracy from the major Setswana chieftaincies, and the most marginalised people were usually uh, Bushmen groups, uh, but Galagadi groups and other other um, minority-based groups in the country that was that 
that um, comprised the lowest rungs of, of um, hierarchy in Bechuanaland, as it was known at the time, prior to independence. Um, at independence, the upper house was um, comprised of Swana chief, chiefs only, and Swana is the dominant ethnic group, and, and um, there were a number of non-Swana chieftaincies in the country. They were excluded in the, in the composition of the, of the upper house, and so there was political exclusion there, there was widespread poverty, and there was also discrimination in terms of land allocation, and that land allocation was given mainly to the larger sort of Catalonian landholders who, who were attached to these chieftaincies. Uh, Zambia around independence, there was a growing politicisation along the lines of ethno-linguistic difference. There were four major language groups that became salient um, during, during British colonial rule. Uh, uh, the British used four major languages, well they, they chose four languages from different regions to, to translate the Bible and to educate and they became sort of language blocks which then became salient in Zambia's nascent democracy. That was also one of the bases for calls for secession from one province and there was widespread poverty and growing inequality. Uh, mainland Tanzania, the main sort of um, I, I guess uh, risk factor was the bipolar character in terms of the division of Christians and Muslims and, and many scholars have pointed out the potentially explosive sort of character of that and also the potential for that to sort of become I suppose um, uh, used in terms of um, political competition. So just a little background about each of the three leaders. How much time have I got? I'll just do this quickly. So all right, Karma was born in 1921. He, he was the heir to the largest chieftaincy in the country. Now, uh, Bechuana land, as when it was a colony, what the Brits did is they, they recognized the sovereignty of the eight major uh, Swana uh, chieftaincies. And heir to the largest chieftaincy was this man, Saretsa Karma. And um, uh, he was educated in South Africa and Oxford. He became a lawyer. Uh, he married a, an Englishwoman called Ruth Williams in the 1950s, went, came back to Botswana. There was a huge furore about this controversial marriage. Um, there was a, it, was, it was controversial within Botswana, but um, they sorted it out. They, they had a big debate about it. Uh, the chieftaincies, they have, this, uh, they have tribal forums called uh, kiotlas where um, they can debate ideas, and, and they, they reconciled to the idea and embraced her, but the British uh, colonial administrators uh, did not, uh, under pressure from South Africa and Rhodesia, who were very threatened by the idea that a uh, potential um, future independent state leader would be married to a white woman. And um, so, so the Brits, in the end, they expelled him from Bechuana land, and, and so finally, a few years later, he came back. Uh, he relinquished his claims to the chieftaincy and he worked as a, as a, um, a cattle owner, got involved in local politics and then got involved in the, the process towards independence. And he, he became instrumental in the type of um, country that was then forged uh, and the constitution that was written in the, uh, in the years preceding the independence of Botswana in 1966. Um, within this he promoted this, the idea of unity, peace, harmony and a sense of community. He also um, it was very much keen on the idea of um, commercial continuity, I suppose, and, and the, the main commercial industry at the time was the pastoral industry of which he had a, 
a very keen interest in, keen stake in. And so he set up the Botswana Democratic Party, the BDP, which was economically conservative but non-racial and, um, and tried to sort of create a sort of an equal playing field uh, legally and in terms of education and access to health. Kenneth Callender was born in 1924. Uh, he w he's interesting. He's, his parents are actually from what's now modern-day Malawi, so he's not, he's not a member of one of those four major ethno-linguistic blocks, although he spent a lot of time in, in what was called the Copper Belt, where most of the copper mining takes place in, in Zambia. And, so he's, and he grew up speaking Bemba, which was the dominant language, but he's not actually a member of one of those groups. So he was kind of like an outsider, and this, um, I th this gave him an edge in sort of promoting this idea of, of national unity. And he said, with any one of the comments he made, with any like this generation will, will not think of itself in tribal terms of those four major groups, but as Zambians. And this is something that he really pushed. And he promoted this idea of humanism, which uh, was, was very inclusive and, and broad. It was also controversial. Calendar himself is controversial. Hopefully, I'll have time to talk about that too. But, but this is, this is uh, the idea that he approached um, nation building with in uh, the early years of independence in Zambia. Nyerere, um, he was born in 1924, I think. No, he was, sorry, 1922. Uh, he came from a small tribal chieftaincy. He was, he was heir to a very, very small chieftaincy, not very important, in the west of Tanzania. He was Catholic. All, all three leaders, they were actually deeply religious people. Nyerere was Catholic. Uh, Calendar's father was a, was a missionary, educated in the tradition of David Livingston by the, um, by the, um, the, 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 um, the mission leaders that um, were established by David Livingston's uh, work in the late 1800s. Um, he was educated in Edinburgh. He, he became exposed to Fabian socialism while he was in, Ed while he was in Edinburgh, and he start, started to combine that with what he called sort of the roots of African socialism as well. And, and this, this combined in the early years of independence uh, under, this, under this term called Ujama, where his original strategy was to get invest to attract foreign investment to develop these ambitious projects these industrial and, and other uh, large-scale projects none of this investment was forthcoming so he had to um, reconsider and what he did is he came up with this idea called Ujama at in 1967 and um, basically it was a, a Kiswahili term that meant family he wanted to get back to this idea of um, self-reliance and he wanted to promote small-scale agriculture to build self-reliance and then to build economic growth on that sort of basic pillar of self-reliance. And so, anyway, I'll talk about that a little bit later. So what were some of Karma's strategies? Well, first of all, the way that he, he uh, formed the BDP was interesting. It was a broad-based party. It was inclusive, and um, it attracted a, a broad base of support throughout the country. He, through the BDP... He became uh, the most influential uh, party involved in, in creating the new constitution. And in that constitution, there were some really interesting achievements that, that were, were quite astonishing looking back. One is that, and he did this physically by going from village to village and from chieftaincy to chieftaincy, he sought the consent of the eight major chieftaincies to cede their sovereignty to the the nascent 
centralised democratic state. And, and this is crucial because these were the eight... I, I guess these, these were... When Botswana became an independent country, this is where uh, threats to sovereignty would have come from. It would have come from these, one of these eight major uh, Swana tribal groups. He, through conversation, through persuasion and through debate, he convinced them all to cede their sovereignty to, to this broader state. And, um, and the feat was so great that, in fact, a couple of these leaders, a couple of years later, um, actually kind of did a what just happened kind of moment where they thought, what, what have we just done? We've just ceded all of our sovereignty and, and, um, and what have we got in return? And um, a couple of them tried to stir up a little bit of trouble. But interestingly enough, the two tribal leaders that did express some dissent did it through the due process established in the, the modern democratic state. So one joined an opposition party, the other one joined a land board and got involved there. Karma ended up buying them both off. He offered one of them a, a, uh, an ambassadorship in the United States, I think, and, and he offered the other one a really plum public sector job somewhere else as well. So he was quite astute about buying people over. But, um, but from the outset, what this meant was that um, these chieftaincies had no power of veto in, in the modern state. So they only had a ceremonial or a, a, um, uh, an advisory role in the upper house of parliament. They couldn't veto legislation. They had no legislative power in the lower house. That was all uh, based on, on, on elections. So, and, and what he also did was... In, Accommodate customary law into the lowest, into the the bottom rung of the judicial um, structures, but that dealt with something like 80% of all sort of um, legal disputes. The customary courts will deal with that, and only when disputes couldn't get resolved through the customary courts, they would go through to these these uh, district courts or the high court. So he accommodated traditional rule, but he also limited it in a way that didn't compromise the sovereignty of the new democratic state. And I, thought that, I think that's crucial for, for uh, the, the long-term stability of, of the country. And he did that all through, through persuasion. Um, but the establishment of this independent... Within the judiciary, the, the judiciary, and this is, he's coming from a legal background as well, he established a really robust and independent judiciary which enabled some of these other marginalised groups who didn't get a say in the, new, in the terms of the new country the Sam Bushman groups in particular who've been evicted from ancestral lands and other th horrible things have happened to them, um, they were able to actually challenge the government on discriminatory policies using due process and they've, they've actually defeated the government in some key areas as well. And that's all based on this, um, the independent judiciary that Karma uh, was responsible for setting up. Um, I'll just leave that there because I'm running out of time. Kaunda, what the key thing that Kaunda did was uh, he saw the danger of, this, of, of these alliances that were forming within the governing party that he <coughs> founded called the United National Independence Party or UNIP, but also between parties as well. Political competition, factional divisions within his main party and between parties were based on ethno-linguistic affiliations and uh, what was happening was uh, that ministerial departments and public sector departments were becoming stacked in terms of who was in control of those departments so that uh, member speakers would hire their own or uh, the, the member the speaking ministers would then 
would then give you know um, um, power to other member speakers and and there were there were growing tensions and what calendar did is he he uh, kept reshuffling ministerial posts he kept reshuffling uh, executive positions in the public sector to offset this tendency that um, that that ethno-linguistic based divisions were becoming more and more institutionalised in the country and so he worked very hard to to offset that and I think that and and it was this sort of idea of national unity transcending these divisions that was the driving sort of force behind that uh, he was uh, caught up in that process was also um, noise from traditional leaders in the western province that made up what was called the Lotsi kingdom prior to independence they wanted they wanted to secede and um, he he made some concessions to keep them on side but also he empowered younger sort of members of um, of the Lotsi speaking people from that area within parliament give, gave them plum positions and they were they were very much in favor of the broader sort of national project rather than this this sort of separation that some of the traditional leaders wanted so he sort of played some people off others uh, he was quite astute in sort of managing that problem but um, I think his greatest achievement and he has many faults as well and all of the leaders do but his greatest achievement I think was avoiding that um, possibility that politics were go was going to be divided by these emerging, emerging uh, identity based differences that uh, were starting to sort of materialise at an institutional level, and for all of the other issues that that you, that are surrounded with calendar, and he got booted out more or less 27 years later after independence. Um, I think he's he established a really key precedent there. Nyerere with Ujama when he knew that he wasn't getting any help from outside, and he had to sort of build this idea of self-reliance. It was this what he called African socialism. He said Afri uh, African culture at its heart is, is, sociali is socialist and uh, he tried to sort of foster that idea through this, this, this uh, concept called Ujama. One of the major things he did there was, was uh, called the villagization process and this is quite a, uh, a profound and, and uh, heavily impactful um, social engineering project more or less where uh, Tanzania was essentially, for the most part, out of a few small urban centres, uh, were sort of isolated family groups um, living and subsisting. And he created what he called villages, where people lived closer together, and they and they collectivised some of these uh, agricultural sort of practices that they had, and it, it compelled a various various numbers of different sort of. Uh, tribal-based groups to coexist, but also religious-based groups, and so people were compelled, Christians were compelled to help Muslims build mosques, Muslims were compelled to help Christians build churches, and so um, in an from an economic perspective, Ujama was, a, was, was an absolute failure. It, it, um, it didn't do anything to, to um, combat poverty after 20 or 30 years, and it was by the 1980s it was abandoned. But what it did do was foster social cohesion. And it's really interesting, when Tanzania adopted um, structural adjustment um, program-based policies in the 1980, where there was a lot of privatisation and the lifting of subsidies, it's very interesting that um, the growing inequality that those programs provoked did not, um, did not fall along ethnic-based or religious-based lines. And I think that's testament to the fact that um, 
after independence in Tanzania, Nyerere was very astute in um, offsetting the um, the tendency for a, a sort of a, a new elite to form to take advantage of the spoils of governance, and he was he was very um, he was I think he was very astute in sort of. Uh, maintaining a level playing field for everybody there. Also, the nature of the party that he established, Tanzania or Tanganyika African National Union, in the early 1950s, uh, it took advantage of Kiswahili, which uh, was a hybrid language, partly based on Arabic, partly based on African languages, and um, it it um, it was unique in that it it I think it it created a good playing. It, it created an inclusive environment for which. Uh, did not favour either the Christians or Muslims, whereas in some post-colonial states, where where the adoption of um, of the language of colonial of the colonial rulers uh, then continued into independence, there was a tendency, particularly if there's a Muslim-Christian divide, that um, the the missionary um, teachers, mission-based uh, education that that the, a lot of colonial places invested in. Uh, favoured Christians in some areas and not Muslims. So I'm almost out of time. But anyway, uh, to cut a long story short there, Kiswahili really fostered, I think, an inclusive uh, environment for both Christians and Muslims. Okay, so I'm going to cut this conclusion fairly short. Um, what I'm interested in is, is the extent to which uh, I think the key point is that the extent to which long-term risk mitigation is, is partly, at least, a product of deliberate strategies. And we talk about um, enacting deliberate strategies in terms of committing mass atrocities, but very rarely in mitigating the risk or avoiding mass atrocities. And I think that there is a role uh, that some of these leaders played in, in enacting deliberate strategies that has um, uh, one, of its, one of its positive effects was that uh, it... I think it mitigated risk over time and it fostered social cohesion as well. Further research, as I said, uh, one paper I'm, I'm in the process of drafting. The second paper, I think, and any thoughts that people might have here would be much appreciated. Thinking of adding a, an, another case, Hufwe Buani, as, a, as a, a contrasting case where you have similar characteristics of leadership but you have a very different outcome as well. And why, why is that? What, what what else is going on there and what can we learn from that as well. I might leave it at that. Thank you very much for the presentation. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.